Hello, everybody. Welcome to this very, very special episode of the Naked Security Podcast, where we have the most amazing guest, Mr. Andy Greenberg from New York City. And Andy is the author of a book I can very greatly recommend with the fascinating title, Tracers in the Dark, The Global Hunt for the Crime Lords of Cryptocurrency. So, Andy, let's start off what made you write this book in the first place? It seems fascinatingly complicated. Yeah, well, thank you, Paul. I guess I'm not sure if that's a compliment. Oh, it is. It is. Thank you. So I've, been, I've covered this world of, of hackers and cybersecurity and encryption for about 15 years now. And around, let's see, I guess 2010, I started working on a book, a different book that was about the cypherpunk movement in the 1990s and the ways that it gave rise to the modern internet, but also to things like WikiLeaks and other kinds of encryption anonymity tools, and ultimately what we now call the dark web, I suppose. And I've always been fascinated with the ways that on this beat that anonymity can play this kind of fascinating, dramatic role and allow people to become someone else or to kind of reveal to you in secret who they truly are. And as I dug into this like cypherpunk world, Around 2010 and 2011, I came upon this thing that seemed to be like a new phenomenon in that world of online anonymity, which was Bitcoin. I wrote the, I think the first print magazine piece about Bitcoin for Forbes magazine in 2011. And I interviewed one of the first Bitcoin developers, Gavin Andreessen, for that piece. And Gavin and many others at the time were describing Bitcoin as a kind of anonymous digital cash for the internet. You could actually use this new invention, Bitcoin, to put unmarked bills in a briefcase, basically, and like send it across the internet to anyone in the world. And you know, being the kind of reporter I, I am, I'm sort of like interested in the the like subversive and sometimes criminal, sometimes politically motivated, I don't know, underhanded and dark corners of the internet. I just saw how this would enable like a new world of of yes, like people seeking financial privacy, but also money laundering and drug dealing online and all of this that would come to pass in the next few years. But what I didn't foresee is that 10 years later or so, it would be by then apparent that Bitcoin is actually the opposite of anonymous. I mean, that is the big surprise and the big reveal. For me, it was a kind of slow motion epiphany to realize that cryptocurrency was actually extremely traceable. It was the opposite of this anonymous cash for the internet that many people once thought it was. And the result, I think, was that it served as a kind of trap for many people seeking financial privacy and criminals over that decade. And as I realized the, the extent of this around, I mean, fully realized that in 2020 or so, I began to, at the same time, see that this one company, Chainalysis, a blockchain analysis, Bitcoin cryptocurrency tracing firm, was being thanked in one U.S. Department of Justice announcement after another and all of these major busts. And so I, I started talking to Chainalysis and then to their customers and law enforcement and slowly realized that there had been this one small group of detectives that had figured this out much earlier than me, that had, that had started actually tracing Bitcoins years earlier and had used this incredibly powerful investigative technique to go on this spree of one massive cyber criminal bust after another using cryptocurrency as this surprise trap that had been laid for so many people on the dark web and in the cyber criminal world as a whole. 
Now, I suppose we shouldn't really be surprised at that, should we, as you explain in the book, because the whole idea, at least of the Bitcoin blockchain, is that it is, by design, entirely and utterly public and irrevocable. That's how it can work as a ledger that is equivalent to something that would normally be held privately and individually by your bank. It doesn't actually have your name on it, but it has a magic identifier that once tied to you can't really be cut loose if there's other evidence to say, yeah, long hexadecimal string of stuff is Andy Greenberg and here's why. Now try denying it. So I think you're right. This idea that it's possible to trade anonymously with Bitcoin, I think was taken by very many people to mean that it is fundamentally anonymous and ever untraceable. But the world is not like that, is it? Yeah, I sometimes look back on my 2011 self and, you know, in that piece for Forbes, I, I did write that Bitcoin was potentially untraceable. And I sort of scolded myself and think, how could you be such an idiot? Well, the whole idea of Bitcoin is that there's this blockchain that records every transaction. But then I remind myself that even Satoshi Nakamoto, the mysterious creator of Bitcoin, whoever he, she, or they are, in, in their first email to a cryptography mailing list introducing the idea of Bitcoin, listed among its features that participants can be anonymous. That was a feature of Bitcoin that as Satoshi described it. I think there's always been this idea that Bitcoin, if, if not anonymous, at least is pseudonymous, that you can hide behind the pseudonym of your Bitcoin address. And that if you can't figure out somebody's address, you can't figure out their transactions. I, I guess we all should have known, I should have known, and maybe even Satoshi should have known, that given this massive corpus of data, there would be patterns in it that allow people to identify clusters of addresses that all belong to one person and, or service or to follow the money from one address to another, to find like interesting giveaways in this massive collection of data. The biggest giveaway of all is when you cash in or cash out at a cryptocurrency exchange that has know your customer requirements, as almost all of them do now, and they have your identity. So if, if somebody can just subpoena that exchange, then they have your actual driver's license in hand and any illusion of anonymity just completely backfires. You know, that is the story of, I think, how Bitcoin's anonymity turned out to be the opposite. Andy, do you think perhaps, though, that there's nothing wrong with Satoshi Nakamoto saying you can be anonymous when you use Bitcoin? I, I think what's wrong is that lots of people assume that because technology can let you do something that is desirable for your privacy, therefore, however you use it, it always will. And the original idea of Bitcoin didn't include exchanges, did it? And so there wouldn't be any exchanges that would take a copy of your driving license if it was used in its original sort of cypherpunk way, as far as I can see. Well, yeah, I certainly don't blame Satoshi for not predicting the entire cryptocurrency economy, including the ways that exchanges would interface with the traditional finance world. I mean, that's it's all incredibly complex economics. I mean, Bitcoin was brilliant enough as it is. But I do think that it's more than just you can be anonymous with Bitcoin if you're careful, but most people are not careful. It turns out, I think, that the possibility, no matter how smart you are, of using Bitcoin anonymously is vanishingly small. Also, you know, there is this property of the blockchain that it, it is forever. So if you use the kind of smartest ideas of the day to try to, to avoid any of these patterns that reveal your transactions on the blockchain, 
But then someone years later figures out a new trick to identify transactions, then you're still screwed. They can go back in time and use their new ideas to foil your cutting edge anonymity tricks from years earlier. Absolutely. Like with the bank fraud, you can imagine you could get lucky, couldn't you? That just when you're about to be investigated years later, you find the banks had a data security disaster and they've lost all their backups and, oh, they can't recover the data. With the blockchain, that ain't never going to (laughs) happen because everybody's got a copy and that's a requirement for the system to work as it does. So once locked in, always locked in, it can never be lost. That's the thing. Like To be anonymous with cryptocurrency, you truly have to be perfect, perfect for all time. And to catch someone who's trying to be anonymous with cryptocurrency slipping up, you just have to be smart and persistent and work on it for years, which is what first chain out for actually first academic researchers like Sarah Mickeljohn at University of California, San Diego, who, as I document in the book, came up with a lot of these techniques. But then Chainalysis, this startup that's now an almost $9 billion unicorn selling polished cryptocurrency tracing tools to law enforcement agencies. And now all of these law enforcement agencies that have professional Bitcoin tracers, their savvy, their know-how in doing this is just growing by leaps and bounds. And I think it's almost just a better rule to say that, no, you cannot be anonymous with cryptocurrency, that it is fully transparent. That's the safer way to operate almost. But to be fair, Satoshi Nakamoto said participants can be anonymous. It turns out that the only participant, I think, who has remained anonymous is Satoshi Nakamoto. And that is in part because very few people have that kind of otherworldly restraint that Satoshi had to amass a million Bitcoins and then never spend them or move them. If you do that, yes, I think you can perhaps be anonymous. But if you ever want to use your cryptocurrency or to put it in a liquid form where you can spend it, then I think you're toast. Yes, because there are some amazing things that have happened, one of which you allude to because it was in the works just at the end of the book, that (laughs) what I call the crocodile lady and her husband, Heather Morgan and Ilya Lichtenstein, they're alleged to have somehow received a whole load of crypto coins from basically a crypto bank robbery against Bitfinex. In their cases, they received stolen cryptocurrencies in vast quantities so that they could quite literally have been billionaires if they could have cashed it out. But when bust, they still had the vast majority of that stuff sitting around. So it seems that in a lot of cryptocurrency crimes, your eyes can be a lot bigger than your stomach. You may live the high life a little bit. The crocodile lady and her husband, it does seem they were living quite a flash lifestyle. But when they were bust, what was the amount? It was more than $3 billion of Bitcoins worth that they had and couldn't cash out. The uh, Department of Justice said that they seized $3.6 billion from them. That was the biggest seizure, not just of cryptocurrency in history, but of money in the history of the Department of Justice. And in fact, as I document in the book, actually one of these happened after the book, but the IRS criminal investigators who are the main subjects of this book have now pulled off the first, second, and third biggest seizures of money in the American criminal justice history by following cryptocurrency and seizing Bitcoins. Your point is absolutely right, which is that cryptocurrency is easy to steal, it turns out. That is, I think, one of its big drawbacks for the the businesses that, like exchanges, that have to hold sometimes billions of dollars in a kind of digital safe. But then 
if you do steal it, if you pull off one of these massive heists, two of the three of the cases that we're discussing are actually people who stole the money from the Silk Road dark web drug market. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, when you steal from a crook, it's still a crime, eh? Yes, unfortunately for those crooks, anyway. One of the most intriguing bits for me in the book was somebody that you identify as individual X, only because that's the way they were identified by the court. And this individual had stolen 70,000 bitcoins and was busted and basically gave them back, sort of in return for getting let off. They didn't get prosecuted, they didn't go to prison, they didn't, I imagine, even get a criminal record, and they were never named. That's right. So that seems like an almost unreadable mystery, doesn't it? If we look forward a few years, now that Bitcoin's, what, in the last year it's gone down to about a third of its value, Ether's down to about a third, Monero's about a half, do you think that that gambit of saying, oh, I'll give the money back, let me off, would have worked if the prices were reversed and what they were handing back was now worth a fraction of what it was when it was stolen? Or do you think that individual X was lucky because what they had to hand back was actually worth much more than when they stole it? I think it's, it's the latter. The, you know, individual X stole that money while the Silk Road was still online. Wow, so that would have been when BTC was, what, hundreds then? Yeah, probably. I, Bitcoin had just kind of broken through a thousand, if I remember. And so this poor person, I don't, I don't want to say guy, who knows who Individual X is, sat on these 70,000 Bitcoins for seven years, ultimately, probably exactly as you said, just terrified to move them or cash them out for fear of being caught. Yeah, can you imagine? Hey, I'm a millionaire. Hey, I'm a billionaire. Oh, golly, but where am I going to get my rent money? <laughs> Shouldn't laugh. As you say, like the hand stuck in the cookie jar, the hand just gets bigger and bigger and bigger until it's all consuming and you cannot move it. You can't get it out. In fact, even without trying to get it out, IRS criminal investigators through other means, including the seizure of the BTCE exchange, you know, which was a kind of money laundering criminal Bitcoin exchange. That was a rogue exchange that basically did as little as is humanly possible along the know your customer front. Ask no questions, tell no lies kind of thing. Is that right? Yes, exactly. And so, and so that was another surprise for many users who believed that maybe I can use BTCE a little bit and not get caught because that doesn't have know your customer, that doesn't cooperate with law enforcement. But nonetheless, when that exchange was busted and its servers seized, that provided more clues to the IRS. And that helped, in fact, to figure out who Individual X was. I don't know who they are, but the government does. And to knock on his or her door and say, hey, hand over a billion dollars or you're going to jail. And that's exactly what happened. But poor James Jong is a very similar case. He seems to have taken 50,000 bitcoins from the Silk Road, probably around the same time, and then held on to them for even longer. And then a year after Individual X got a knock on his door, similarly, they had traced the money, even though he had just left it sitting on a USB drive and a popcorn tin under the floorboards of his closet. And in his case, he did not manage to make a deal somehow, and he's being criminally charged. And he guys given the money back, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Uh... He was a Bitcoin billionaire and now is facing criminal charges and never got to even spend his loot. The Bitfinex case, I don't know, I, I have less sympathy for them because they truly were trying to launder a massive theft from a legitimate business. 
And they did, I think, launder some of it. They tried several different clever techniques. They put the money through, I mean, this is all alleged, I should say they're innocent until proven guilty, this couple in New York. But they tried to put the money through the Alphabay dark web market as a kind of laundering technique, thinking that would be a black box that law enforcement would not be able to see through. But then Alphabay was busted and seized. That's perhaps the biggest story I tell in the book. The most exciting cloak and dagger story is how they tracked down the kingpin of Alpha Bay in Bangkok and arrested him. Yeah, spoiler alert, that's where the helicopter gunships come in. Yes, yes, and much more. I mean, the, that story is one of the craziest I will probably tell in my career. But then also this, this New York money laundering couple tried to put some of the money through Monero, a cryptocurrency that is advertised as a privacy coin, a potentially untraceable cryptocurrency. And yet in the IRS documents where they describe how they caught this couple in New York, they show how they continue to follow the money even after it's exchanged for Monero. So that was a sign to me that perhaps even Monero, this newer untraceable cryptocurrency, is a bit traceable too, to some degree. And perhaps this trap persists that even coins that are designed to outstrip Bitcoin in terms of their anonymity are not all they're cracked up to be. Although I should say the Monero people hate it when I even say this out loud and I don't, you know, I don't know how that worked. All I can say is that it looks very possible that Monero tracing was used in that case. Well, there could be some operational security blunders that the crocodile lady and her husband made as well that kind of tied it all together. So Andy, I'd like to ask you, if I may, thinking of crypto tokens like Monero, which as you say, it's meant to be more privacy focused than Bitcoin because it inherently, if you like, joins transactions together. And then there's also Zcash, or I guess as uh, you would say, Zcash, designed by cryptography experts, specifically using technology known in the jargon as zero knowledge proofs, which is at least supposed to be that neither side can tell who the other is, but yet it's still impossible to double spend. With all the eyes on these much more privacy focused tokens, where do you think the future's going? not just for law enforcement, but where do you think it might drag our legislators? There's certainly been a fascination for decades amongst sometimes very influential parliamentarians to say, you know what, this encryption thing, it's a, actually a really, really bad idea. We need back doors. We need to be able to break it. Somebody has to think of the children, etc., etc. Well, it's interesting to talk about crypto backdoors and the legal debate over encryption that even law enforcement can't crack. I think that in some ways, the story of this book shows that that is often not necessary. I mean, the criminals in this book were using traditional encryption. They were using Tor and the dark web, and none of that was cracked to bust them. Instead, investigators followed the money, and that turned out to be the backdoor. It's an interesting parable and a good example of how very often there is a kind of side channel in criminal operations, this other leak of information that, you know, without cracking the main communications, offers a way in and doesn't necessitate any kind of backdoor in Tor or the dark web or Signal or hard disk encryption or, or whatever. And in fact, speaking of thinking of the children, one of the last major stories that I dig deeply into in the book is the bust of this welcome to video market for child sexual abuse videos that accepted cryptocurrency. And as a result, the IRS investigators at the center of the book were able to track down and arrest 337 people around the world who used that market. It was the biggest bust of, as we say, child sexual abuse materials by some measures 
and history, all based on cryptocurrency tracing. And they didn't need to do anything that you would really consider privacy violating, did they? They quite literally followed the money in a trail of evidence that was public by design and in conjunction, admittedly, with warrants and subpoenas from places where the money popped out and where internet connections were made, were able to identify the people involved and largely to avoid trampling on millions of people who had absolutely no connection with the case whatsoever. Yes, I think that it is an example of a way to do, it is in some ways mass surveillance, but mass surveillance in a way that nonetheless does not require weakening anybody's security. I guess that cryptocurrency users and people who believe in the power of cryptocurrency for enabling activists and dissidents and journalists and money transmissions to countries like Ukraine that need injections of money for survival, they would argue that nonetheless, we need to fix cryptocurrency to make it as untraceable as we once thought it might be. And that's where we get into the new, I would say, a new crypto war over cryptocurrency. We're just starting to see the beginning of that with tools like Monero and Zcash, as you said. I do think that there will probably be still surprises about the ways that Monero can be traced. I've seen a leaked Chainalysis document where they told Italian law enforcement, it's a presentation in Italian to the Italian police from Chainalysis, where they say that they can trace Monero in the majority of cases to find a usable lead. I don't know how they do that. It does seem like it's probabilistic more than definitive. I don't think a lot of people understand that that is often enough for law enforcement to get a subpoena to start subpoenaing cryptocurrency exchanges just based on a probabilistic guess. They can just check every possibility if, if there are few enough of them. Andy, I'm conscious of time. So I'd like to finish up now by just asking you one final question. And that is, in 10 years time, do you see yourself being in a position where you'll be able to write a book like this one, but where the unravelling parts are even more fascinating, complicated, exciting and amazing? I tried with this book not to make too many predictions. And in fact, the book begins with this mea culpa that 10 years ago, I believed exactly the wrong thing about Bitcoin. So nobody should listen to any 10-year prediction that I have. <laughs> But the simplest prediction to make that has to be true is that this cat and mouse game will still be going on in 10 years, that people will still be using cryptocurrency, thinking that they have outsmarted the tracers, and that the tracers will still be coming up with new tricks to prove them wrong. The stories, as you say, will, I think, be much more convoluted because they'll be dealing with these cryptocurrencies like Monero that build in vast mixed networks and Zcash that have zero knowledge proofs. But it does seem that there will always be some way, and maybe not even in cryptocurrency, but in, in some other side channel, as I was saying, like there will be a new one that unravels the whole thing. But there's no question that this cat and mouse game will go on. And I'm sure there'll be another Tigran Gambarian sometime in the future for you to interview. Well, I do think that the game of anonymity, it does favor the Tigran Gambarians of the world. They, as I said, just have to be persistent and smart. And the mice in this cat and mouse game have to be perfect. And no one is perfect. Absolutely. So if I, if I do have to make a prediction, then I would just place my bet on the cats, on the Tigran Gambarians of the world. <laughs> Andy, thank you so much. 
before we go, why don't you tell our listeners where they can get your book? Yeah, thanks, Paul. The book is called Tracers in the Dark, The Global Hunt for the Crime Lords of Cryptocurrency. And it's available like all the normal places books are sold. But if you go to andygreenberg.net, then uh, you can just find links to a bunch of places. Andy, thank you so much for your time. It was as fascinating talking to you and listening to you as it was reading your book. I recommend it to anybody who wants a galloping read that is nevertheless detailed and insightful about how law enforcement works. And importantly, why criminal convictions for cybercrimes often only happen years after the crime occurred. The devil really is in the details. Thank you, Paul. It's been a super fun conversation. I'm just glad you enjoyed the book. Excellent. Thanks to everybody who listened. And as always, until next time, stay secure. Stay secure.